From New York, this is Democracy Now! The rate of temperature rise in the last half century is the highest in 2,000 years. Concentrations of carbon dioxide are at their highest in at least 2 million years. The climate time bomb is ticking. The United Nations issues a final warning that the world is facing its last chance to prevent catastrophic global warming. We'll speak to leading climate activists in the United States and Mozambique about the IPCC report, the role of banks fueling the climate emergency, and Cyclone Freddy that's killed over 500 people in Malawi and Mozambique. We are one of the countries without historical responsibility, but yet struggling with the impacts of the climate crisis and so many other multiple interrelated crises. Then, as we continue to mark the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we look at how the U.S. mainstream media helped amplify the Bush administration's lies while silencing voices of dissent. Pay no heed to the peaceniks and the left-wing rock stars. They've had their 15 minutes of fame. These people are essentially useless. They are reflexively opposed to war. It's a principled position, but it's the wrong position, and you can't take them seriously as a strategic voice. We expect every American to support our military, and if they can't do that, to shut up. We'll speak to Norman Solomon, author of War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. His forthcoming book, War Made Invisible. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations warns in a new report the world's on pace to blow past a critical global heating threshold by the early 2030s unless nations take immediate and dramatic steps to mitigate the climate catastrophe. The U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said Monday the planet's on course to warm by an average of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels within a decade, causing irreversible damage to human populations and ecosystems. The report warns of worsening heat waves, flooding, drought, rising sea levels, famine, mass extinction and the spread of infectious diseases. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced the findings Monday, saying a livable future for all is still possible if nations take urgent action. The 1.5 degree limit is achievable, but it will take a quantum leap in climate action. This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame. In short, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. Here in the United States, climate activists have organized a day of action today against key banks they say are fueling global heating. We'll have more on the IPCC report and today's protests after headlines. New research finds drought killed 43,000 people in Somalia last year while leaving 5 million people with acute food shortages. Nearly 2 million children remain at risk of malnutrition. Humanitarian aid groups and climate scientists warn Somalia and other parts of the Horn of Africa face a sixth consecutive failed rainy season. And conditions this year are even worse than 2011, when famine killed an estimated quarter million people in Somalia. Russia's defense ministry says it scrambled a fighter jet Monday to intercept a pair of U.S. Air Force B-52 bombers flying over the Baltic Sea. 
The Russian fighter reportedly returned to its base after the nuclear-capable U.S. bombers moved away from Russia's border. The incident came as Ukraine's defense ministry said it destroyed a train carrying cruise missiles bound for Russia's Black Sea fleet at a station in the Russian annexed Crimean Peninsula. In Brussels, European Union ministers agreed Monday to provide Ukraine with one million artillery shells over the next year while replenishing their own stockpiles of ammunition. Meanwhile, the Biden administration approved a new $350 million military aid package for Ukraine. The U.S. State Department said Monday all sides committed war crimes and crimes against humanity during the recent conflict in northern Ethiopia. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the findings from Washington, D.C. Monday, just days after his return from Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, where Blinken met with the prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, and representatives of the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The conflict in northern Ethiopia was devastating. Men, women and children were killed. Women and girls were subject to horrific forms of sexual violence. Thousands were forcibly displaced from their homes. Entire communities were specifically targeted based on their ethnicity. Many of these actions were not random or a mere byproduct of war. They were calculated and deliberate. Blinken stopped short of stating the Ethiopian government's atrocities in Tigray constituted genocide. In Kenya, police tear-gassed a convoy carrying opposition leader Raila Odinga in the capital, Nairobi, Monday, as he led protests against President William Ruto's government and high inflation. A university student was reportedly shot dead at a demonstration in the city of Kisumu. They were some of the largest anti-government protests in Kenya since Odinga narrowly lost to Ruto last August. In South Africa, thousands of protesters marched in cities nationwide Monday, demanding President Cyril Ramaphosa resign over widespread unemployment and rolling blackouts. South Africa's National Police Agency said officers had arrested more than 550 protesters since Sunday. About half of all young people in South Africa are unemployed. Meanwhile, South Africa's public electric utility continues to impose rolling blackouts of up to 10 hours a day as demand for electricity exceeds supply. The French government narrowly survived a pair of no-confidence votes in Parliament Monday after President Emmanuel Macron rammed through an unpopular law by executive fiat, raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. The failure of the no-confidence votes sparked fresh protests across France, with police firing tear gas at demonstrators in Lille and Bordeaux, and protesters setting piles of uncollected trash on fire in central Paris. This is French Member of Parliament Mathilde Panot speaking just after Monday. As you could have understood, the hundreds of thousands of people who are now gathering together every day in the entire country since last Thursday and since Macron bypassed the assembly will not stop just because this motion of no confidence has barely failed, just lacking nine little votes. Nothing has been fixed in the country, and the country continues to head towards a political crisis that Macron himself started. Unions and French opposition parties have called a ninth nationwide day of strikes and protests Thursday. In Washington, D.C., a federal jury has found four members of the far-right Oath Keepers militia group guilty of felony and misdemeanor charges, including obstructing an official proceeding over their roles in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. The four faced prison terms of up to 20 years. Their convictions on Monday came as federal prosecutors in a separate trial rested their case against former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and and four other defendants who face charges of seditious conspiracy. 
Amazon's announced plans to lay off 9,000 more workers in the coming weeks. The layoffs build on 18,000 job cuts at Amazon that began in November and extended into January. U.S. high-tech firms have laid off more than 300,000 workers this year. In Los Angeles, tens of thousands of school custodians, cafeteria workers, bus drivers and other school support staff have begun a three-day strike demanding dignified working conditions and living wages after nearly a year of negotiations with the Los Angeles Unified School District. Their union is calling for at least a 30 percent income increase as school staff only makes an average of $25,000 annually, or roughly $12 per hour. Tens of thousands of L.A. teachers have joined the strike in solidarity. And here in New York, dozens of community organizers, parents, teachers and students rallied at Bronx High School Monday protesting a military recruitment and job fair event hosted by New York Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Adriano Espaillat. The so-called Student Services Fair featured representatives of the U.S. Army, Navy, Air Force and Coast Guard. Advocates accused Ocasio-Cortez of backtracking on her anti-war campaign promises and policies opposing predatory military recruitment tactics that predominantly target black, brown, Latinx and low-income students. In 2020, Ocasio-Cortez proposed a ban against military recruitment on Twitter, while she later pushed for a bill amendment that would have halted federal funding for military recruitment in middle and high schools. Richie Marino is an organizer with the Bronx Anti-War Coalition, speaking at Monday's rally at Renaissance High School, which took place on the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. A lot of youth here um, are struggling to find jobs. Uh, many youth here are not prepared to go to college, right? Instead of uh, bringing military recruiters here, we should be having a, a jobs fair. We should be having a college fair. Um, Renaissance High School is an arts and theater school. Where are the arts and theater programs represented here, AOC? You're saying this is a student services fair. Where are the services for the youth? Richie Marina was speaking with Democracy Now!'s Sanji Lopez. Organizers also demanded justice for Vanessa Guillen and Ana Basulio Ruiz, two Latina women who were killed after they reported being sexually assaulted at Fort Hood Army Base in Texas. Guillen in 2020, Ruiz last week, and 21-year-old Abdul Latifu, who was murdered in January by another soldier at Fort Rucker in Alabama. Latifu was from the Bronx. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations has issued a final warning that the world is facing its last chance to prevent catastrophic global warming. The U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, said Monday every additional increment of warming will amplify impacts already felt by millions worldwide— and called for an end to coal and net-zero electricity generation by 2035. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the report a, quote, how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. The rate of temperature rise in the last half century is the highest in 2,000 years. Concentrations of carbon dioxide are at their highest in at least 2 million years. The climate time bomb is ticking. 
The IPCC report comes as the death toll from Cyclone Freddy has topped 500 in Malawi. At least another 66 people have died in Mozambique. Over a half million people have been displaced in the southeastern African nations. Cyclone Freddy was one of the strongest storms ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere and the longest-lasting tropical cyclone on record. As corporations and governments face growing pressure to address the climate crisis, President Joe Biden vetoed a Republican-backed bill Monday to reinstate a Trump-era ban on retirement plans using a sustainable investment practice known as ESG that takes into account environmental, social and governance impacts. This comes as funding for fossil fuels remains much greater than for climate adaptation and mitigation. Our next guests are focusing on the four biggest banks in the U.S. that finance fossil fuel expansion—Bank of America, Chase, Citibank and Wells Fargo. Bill McKibben is co-founder of 350.org, founder of the organization Third Act, which organizes people over 60 years old for progressive change. And today is its first national day of action to stop dirty banks, he'd say. Also with us in D.C., Ben Jealous, new executive director of the Sierra Club. He's the former president of the NAACP and People for the American Way. They co-authored a piece for The Guardian headlined, U.S. Banks Are Sacrificing Poor Communities to the Climate Crisis. Also with us, Dipti Banagar. She is longtime climate justice activist based in Mozambique with Friends of the Earth International in Mozambique. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Well, Bill McKibben, your group, Third Act, is organizing today's protests around the country. It is interesting uh, to look at the banks you're focusing on, the largest banks in the United States, at this moment when many are fleeing smaller regional banks, thinking the only place their money is secure is at the big banks. What is your message? Well, Amy, hello. And Third Act is organizing 102 demonstrations in 30 states in the District of Columbia today with the enormous help of the Sierra Club and others. Uh, the reason is that, as you point out, these four big banks are now bigger than ever. They're, in some ways, quasi-public banks. The reason that everybody's going to them is because they know that the taxpayer has taken on the risk associated with running a bank and will backstop them forever. Therefore, we need them to act responsibly in the face of the greatest crisis our species has ever wandered into. At the moment, they're doing just the opposite. These four big banks are also the four biggest lenders to the fossil fuel industry on planet Earth, even though, as you point out, the IPCC and every other set of climate scientists has long since said that expansion of the fossil fuel enterprise has to cease. We're not calling for an end to banking for oil and gas. We're going to have oil and gas for a few more years, and they'll need a bank all we want, and it is a very moderate demand, is for them to cease funding the expansion of that industry the way that HSBC, the largest bank in Europe, agreed to do in December. And Ben Jealous, you were head of the NAACP, then People for the American Way. Now you're with the Sierra Club, and particularly looking um, right now at these protests that are talking about these big banks and their effect on communities of color. Can you respond to um, what has to happen at this point and what the Sierra Club is calling for? Yeah, you know, we are very clear that the banks need to stop funding this 
new projects to extract oil and gas. It's the biggest threat we have to all of the work that's going into trying to stop climate change. And what we saw with HSBC can be done here. The banks simply need to say to their clients, we'll continue to finance what you're currently doing, but we're not going to finance you at all if you keep expanding, because what you're doing is putting the people of this planet in grave risk. What about the fact, I mean, the piece that you write with Bill McKibben in The Guardian, you say the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank will bring many forms of fallout. One of the most obvious consequences is that the biggest banks, the ones you're protesting today, Chase, Citi, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, will probably get even bigger. Now, look, I mean, that's that's precisely right. And what we've seen, actually, is, look, there's there's probably a dozen banks in the U.S. that will not fund oil and gas expansion. There's at least a dozen, lots of them smaller banks, lots of them regional banks. And so what we've seen, actually, is, is people uh, decide that this is, you know, a priority for them. And the big banks see those trends, too. And yet they feel beholden to an industry that is literally driving us towards human extinction. And so what we're asking these banks to do is to have the moral clarity to say to their clients, again, we're not going to stop financing you if you just do what you're currently doing. But if you keep expanding into the Arctic, if you keep expanding into the Gulf, if you keep drilling you know, new drills in Africa and throughout the globe, then we're going to have to stop financing you because what you're doing is putting everything else at risk. And Bill McKibben, you wrote this piece right before President Biden signed off on the Willow Arctic drilling project. You call it a climate turning point. Your response to what has happened with his green lighting of that project? Well, this is a perfect example of what we're talking about. ConocoPhillips, which is developing that ill-begotten project up in the Arctic, uh, has tens of billions of dollars of loans from the banks that we're talking about. They keep funneling them money so that they can do these kind of projects. And, I mean, that one is, I mean, just absolutely emblematic of the insanity. They're going to have to literally refreeze the ground up there before they're able to, the ground that they have melted, before they're able to drill again for yet more oil. But it's not just up in the Arctic. Look at what's happening in Africa. Cyclone Freddy blows across Malawi, leaving huge devastation, while Total, the French energy giant, and others are busy trying to build a giant oil pipeline across the heart of Africa. Um, this is, this is, as the IPCC said yesterday, this is really the battle for the future of planet Earth. If we cannot slow these guys down, and there's only two levers big enough to pull to really matter. One of those levers is marked government, and we've been tugging on it as hard as we can. Uh, and we've gotten at least something, the IRA and the climate bill last year. The other lever is marked money finance. That's what we're pulling today all across the country. These four banks are, well, they're the capital in capitalism, so they're not going to be an easy target. But now that they're 
in this dominant role on our planet, we have to be able to make sure that they pay attention. And today, people will at least be paying attention. Here in D.C., for instance, uh, the banks are going to be blockaded with people in rocking chairs, Amy. Um, Older people are sitting down today, but they're also standing up in a way that they haven't before. We're going to bring in Dipti Bhatnagar after break into this conversation. As you mentioned, Malawi, Madagascar, we're talking about massive cyclone and damage, uh, deaths, lives lost. Bill McKibben is staying with us of 350.org and Third Act, uh, organized today's day of action to stop dirty banks. Ben Jealous, executive director of the Sierra Club. Um, and coming up, Dipti Bhatnagar will join them. She's with Friends of the Earth International in Mozambique. Stay with us. Quantas vezes Deus tem que vencer Satanás? Sempre que necessário vai cair na própria cova. Não cumprimos a ordem dele, nem que seja nova. Presidentes são assassinos e nós somos a prova. Aplaudidos em conferências, mas o povo nos reprova. Chantageiam a saúde, não caímos no vosso truque. Quantas vidas vão vender para enriquecer o vosso clube? Continuamos em pé, a vossa imprensa que divulgue. Não somos feitos de medo, somos feitos de atitude. Queima eles! Com fogo da vossa paz, Senhor! Teu povo não aguenta mais É droga de petróleo e gás Vendem o país Queima eles Com fogo da vossa paz, Senhor Teu povo não aguenta mais É droga de petróleo e gás Segundo verso, deixa-me explicar-vos uma coisa Eu não paro de clamar, nem quero que o governo me ouça Governo que se vende por uma frota de mahindras Vende o próprio povo para comprar quintas O julgamento acabou, cada um com a sua sentença Nós condenados a suportar a vossa presença Vocês enriquecer com os lucros de uma doença Vossa doença, vossa ganância é a vossa doença Aliás... Vendemo país by Azagaya, the popular Mozambican rap, uh, rapper and cultural icon who died on March 9th. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Um, writer and actor—as we continue to look at the climate emergency, we turn to Southeast Africa, where tropical cyclone Freddie has killed over 500 people in Malawi and at least 66 people in Mozambique. Over half a million people have been displaced. Cyclone Freddie, one of the strongest storms ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere and the longest-lasting tropical cyclone on record. It first made landfall in Madagascar on February 19th. We're joined by Dipti Bhatnagar, longtime climate justice activist based in Mozambique. She's with Friends of the Earth Mozambique. She lives in Mozambique, but is now visiting the Bay Area. Um, we are staying with Bill McKibben um, of Third Act and 350.org and Ben Jealous, who's now head of the Sierra Club. Dipti, talk about what's happened in your country, in your region, and how it relates to climate change. Hi, Amy. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on. Um, as, as you've already spoken about, Cyclone Freddy is yet another reminder that climate impacts are not in the future, but very much happening to our communities right now. Uh, almost a million people have been affected in Mozambique and, and 1.6 million across the region. And, you know, this has come on top of what was already a cholera epidemic, what was already flooding happening in southern Mozambique, including affecting my own house 
in early February, the climate impacts were already happening. So when Cyclone Freddy hit for the first time around the 24th of February, and then it went back out again into the Mozambique Channel and then came back and hit again, you know, this is hitting land that is completely saturated, hitting people that are completely saturated without any kinds of reserves. So the climate impacts are happening right now to people. And it's not just one. It's it's happening over and over and over again. And climate change is supercharging these cyclones. They're being able to survive longer on land. They're being able to go out again into the ocean and come back in, which is what we saw with Cyclone Idai, the really destructive cyclone in 2019. And now we see this pattern again. This cyclone is one of the most supercharged cyclone. It's lasted the longest and it has hit Mozambique already twice. And it is affecting people who are already living on the edge, Amy, who have really nothing more to be able to give. They're struggling to survive. And this is why what the IPCC report says about the urgency of the situation is absolutely critical. But we are seeing communities, people that have no historical responsibility for creating this crisis, and they're the ones that are being affected while the rich countries just continue to undermine historical responsibility and equity while the climate negotiations and the IPCC negotiations are going on. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking to see what is happening on the ground. If you can talk about this report that has just come out today, um, the IPCC report, uh, and the significance of what they're saying has to happen right now, Dipti. So the IPCC science is very, very clear in talking about this rapidly closing window of, of opportunity. That is something that we need to take heed. As Bill was talking about, we're seeing expansion of fossil fuels, not just in the Arctic, in Alaska with the Willow Project. Absolutely shocking. But also in Mozambique, one of the countries most affected by the climate crisis, is also where one of the largest gas fields that has been found anywhere in the world in the last 10 years has been has been found and total and others are going ahead with it and the mozambican government is also complicit so we need to be stopping dirty energy everywhere in the world and my group which is justice ambiental i'm actually on sabbatical from friends of the earth international i'm representing justice ambiental friends of the earth mozambique and my group has been fighting against oil and gas in northern Mozambique since 2007, working in the province of Cabo Delgado, where fossil fuels are not only causing climate change, but they're displacing communities. They're causing human rights violations. They're triggering conflict and militarization and insurgencies all across the continent, including in Mozambique. So this is what we need to be fighting against. And the IPCC definitely talks about the need for emissions reductions. But one of the things that's really scary, Amy, is that this whole notion of carbon dioxide removals is playing such a key role now in the IPCC report. And this is really problematic because the, this is opening the door to false climate solutions, false solutions. This is not the way to go. And what this is going to do is... They're talking about overshoot. The word overshoot appears 23 times in the summary for policymakers in the IPCC report that's released today. 
And what they're trying to say is, oh, don't worry, you know, we could cross 1.5 degrees Celsius average global temperature rise, but we'll bring it back down. We might have an overshoot. We'll bring it back down with 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 carbon dioxide removal. And this is really dangerous because how are they going to do the removal? Why why are they doing the removal? Because they do not want to stop fossil fuels. They want to continue business as usual. The elites want to continue to gain in the ways that they're doing. And what they what they are going to do and what they're already doing is grab lands and forests from communities in the global south, including in Mozambique, to be able to offset these emissions. And it's going to create another crisis on top of the fossil fuel crisis that we're seeing in Africa and the climate impacts that we're already seeing. So we need to be so wary and, and push against these carbon dioxide removal and and these false solutions. And we say Stop emissions at source, count consumption emissions, deal with historical responsibility, finance for communities. This is how we will be able to deal with the climate crisis and stop people suffering. I wanted to bring Bill McKibben in on the United Nations issuing its final warning that the world is facing its last chance to prevent catastrophic global warming. The U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, that Dipti is referring to, said Monday, every increment of warming will amplify impacts already felt by millions worldwide. Uh, talk about what stood out most for you in today's report. What stood out most for me was the fact that, in some ways, there's nothing new there. Look, Amy, I wrote the first book about all of this back in 1989, and there really isn't anything that we know now of great importance that we didn't know then. That means that if you're reading that report and you're feeling desperate about it— um, Really, the only thing that makes a difference at this point is to get up and say something, to act. That's why people will be out in the streets today. And some of it will be fun. You know, we've got orcas eating credit cards in Seattle and Bigfoot bashing credit cards in Portland. And in Alaska, they're cutting up credit cards with chainsaws and people on rocking chairs here in D.C., that's the kind of response that we need from people all over the world, um, because, look, otherwise, it's just words on paper. Everybody's heard it at this point. Everybody understands that we're in a desperate fix. The good news, and this really is the good news, that fix is no longer necessary in any way. We live now on a planet where the cheapest way, all of a sudden, to generate power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. The only reason we're not making change fast is because, as our colleague from Mozambique points out so beautifully, uh, it's in the interest of the fossil fuel industry to keep digging stuff up and setting it on fire. We don't need to. Uh, the good Lord hung a large ball of burning gas 93 million miles up in the sky, and we now know how to make full use of it, and we could. That's what we're pushing for today, a dramatic change in investment away from coal and gas and oil and towards sun and the wind and the batteries to store them when the sun goes down and the wind drops. That's our future if we choose to seize it. If we don't, if we don't, then every grim line on those graphs in that U.N. report is going to come to life and haunt our kids for their entire lives.
Vangelis, I'm wondering if you can take us on a through line from the IPCC warning today. Uh, back to when you began as a journalist in Mississippi covering Cancer Alley, through to East Palestine, where we see this massive dump of um, of chemicals from the fossil fuel industry and this train derailment uh, contaminating an entire community, how this all links to climate change. You know, the biggest subsidies in the history of our country of industry has been uh, our government's willingness to declare most places and most people, all people of color and, frankly, most white people, too, because most white people are working class or poor, as disposable. And you see it in places like Mississippi. You see it in, in places like the Gulf Coast of Alabama. When I was a young reporter at the Jackson Advocate newspaper, I was covering the destruction of a community in Columbia, Mississippi, and a group down there called Jesus People Against Pollution that had been formed because a factory that was producing Agent Orange had blown up back in the era of the Vietnam War. And they, when they cleaned up the chemicals, they put them into 55-gallon steel drums and they buried them in the water table. And here we were 30 years after that, 25 years after that, and kids had tumors, had cancerous tumors over them. You would go not far from there to a pulp mill, and you would see on the way all the forests that were being clear-cut. And when you got to the pulp mill, the, what was coming out so oxidized the cars that if you rubbed your hand across the hoods of the cars, it looked like a Jackson Pollock painting. The, the paint was just peeling off the cars because of what was coming out of that pulp mill. Well, the same thing was going into these kids' respiratory systems. So the little kids, their noses just ran all day. And you knew that was because there was caustic chemicals. And what this all speaks to at the end of the day is what Bill's talking about, is our, is our country's addiction to using, frankly, dangerous petrochemicals in ways that we really don't need uh, to be using them, transporting them in ways that are extremely unsafe, as you see in East Palestine. But it also speaks to our country's addiction, quite frankly, to burning stuff in order to power our country, which is ridiculous. Honestly, it's a better deal for the people of this country if we power our country through renewables on multiple levels. It's healthier. Absolutely. It's healthier for the climate. It creates more jobs here. It keeps more money in people's pocket. This Inflation Reduction Act has given us a massive amount of capital to actually build the economy of the future. We are within sight of building an economy where we are creating more jobs, frankly, sustaining the planet than destroying its places and destroying its people than destroying the, the, the planet itself. And what we need the banks to do is to do what they do when they're at their best, which is to, best, is, which is to bet on a better future for all of us. Right now, they're betting against all of us by continuing, frankly, to finance our expanding addiction to oil and gas right when it should be shrinking. Um, Bill, you're right. It took decades to force banks to abandon racist redlining. We don't have decades to avert catastrophic climate act. We just recently came from the U.N. climate summit in Egypt and Sharm el-Sheikh. There, you're not allowed to protest inside the COP without permission. Now you're protesting outside the banks, cutting up your credit cards. Um, your new group is called the Third Act, uh, old and bold. What is the third act uh, that— you will be taking on around climate change? 
Well, the third act recognizes that uh, young people have been providing the climate leadership. Uh, young people and people from frontline communities, indigenous communities, what they lack sometimes is the structural power to force change at the pace that we need. Older people have structural power coming out our ears. Uh, there's 70 million Americans over the age of 60. That is a sleeping giant. That's more people than live in France. And multiply it by some factor because we all vote. There is no known way to stop old people from voting. And not only that, we ended up with a lot of the resources. Uh, the boomers and the silent generation have something like 70 percent of the country's financial assets. So if you want to push around Washington or Wall Street, it's probably good to have a few people with hairlines like mine. And in the last year since we've started Third Act, Amy, people have been showing up everywhere. And now they're building beautiful coalitions with the Sierra Club, with Stop the Money Pipeline, with all our other partners. There's 50 groups, including youth from all over the uh, uh, country, the Sunrise Movement and Fridays for the Future. I just heard from Greta Thunberg overnight saying, good luck and go for it. Uh, everybody's pitching in to make today the beginning of a big campaign to hold capital really accountable. Look, this is an a overwhelming force in the life of the world, as we've learned in the last couple of weeks watching these bank escapades. We need them acknowledging risk of all kinds, financial risk and also the overwhelming risk to our planet, our species, our civilization that comes in the form of climate change. Uh, we need them to remember that the economy is a subset of the earth and not the other way around. If we can get that message through, if we can remind people today of the connection between cash and carbon, literally somebody who has $125,000 in those banks is producing more money because it's being lent out for pipelines and frack wells than all the cooking flying, heating, driving, cooling that an average American does in a year. $5,000 in the bank produces more carbon than flying back and forth across the country. So we need these banks to start acting responsibly, and we need it. Well, the IPCC said <laughs> we're in the last act of this drama unless we stand up and move fast. That's one of the things that Third Act is really about. And finally, Dipni Bhatnagar, um, I want to ask you about another major story out of Mozambique, the recent death of uh, the popular rapper, the cultural icon Azagaya, just 38 years old, inspired so many with his music, singing about injustice, about mistreatment of people by authorities, poverty, social injustice, climate change, his death sparking protests in Mozambique, which authorities have violently suppressed. Your piece just came out in Arts Everywhere headlined the death of a Mozambican rapper and revolutionary. As we go out of this discussion, tell us about Azagaya. Thank you for playing his music. Uh, you know, I was at what turned out to be Azagaya's last public concert in December of 2022 in Maputo City. And, um, you know, we were talking earlier about Cyclone Freddy and the climate impacts that are already happening. And of course, there's multiple interrelated crises that people in Mozambique are facing. 60% of the people do not have access to electricity. 
the human development and index is so low in a context like this someone like azagaya a revolutionary a rapper uses his love for hip hop and and rap to bring these messages of uh injustice but also hope to the youth and you know bill was so beautifully talking about about mobilizing older people what azagaya has managed to do is to ignite the youth not just in mozambique but in in portuguese in the portuguese speaking world unfortunately um all of his music is in portuguese um but it's so beautiful the way that he ignited young minds and and he passed away less than 2 weeks ago but what has happened in mozambique since then has been an absolute travesty because what we have seen is the youth being ignited and mourning and coming onto the streets in a place where it isn't easy to protest on the streets i'm so glad these protests are happening in dc portland all over in in the us in mozambique we do not have the right to to just come onto the streets like in egypt uh, amy which you spoke about and you know when we were in egypt at at cop 27 at the climate negotiations last year we said no climate justice without human rights and that rings true in mozambique today because there was an authorized march on saturday where the youth wanted to come on the streets and 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 mourn publicly the the loss of their of of their cultural icon their revolutionary and the police responded with brutality and tear gas and assaults and arrests my own partner got hit in the back with a tear gas cartridge and why is this important as the crises deepen people are going to get more and more incensed the youth is going to get more and more incensed and we need cultural icons like azagaya we need space we need constructive ways for people to get involved to be able to organize to oppose the injustices that are happening and the powerful know that the government elites the corporate elites across the world they know that people power is what is going to change things which is why they come out with this brutality and fight back and and hit people and and you know throw tear gas on people but but this but the people of mozambique they have shown the people in maputo in beira which is where cyclone idai in 2019 created the most damage they went on the streets on saturday and they mourned their cultural icon's death and they showed that people power even in a place like mozambique is going to be strong and that is what we need if we are going to confront the crises that are coming because the crises are coming and the crises are deepening so in a place like mozambique we need to be prepared not just how do we stop the crises but how are we actually going to deal with it and how are we going to ignite people and how are we going to use people power to push back all of these elites and all of this brutality well we want to thank you so much dipti matnagar uh, friends of the earth mozambique bill mckibben of 350.org and third act and ben jealous now executive director of the sierra club and we're going to go out with azagaya his birth name edson da luz he took on azagaya uh, after an african spear stay with us
Eu falo de povo para povo Porque eu sou povo e tu és povo Usamos a mesma linguagem Quando tu falas eu te ouço Quando eu falo tu me ouves Partilhamos as mesmas dores Se te cansares pedir favores Então venha para baixo Tu que és mal pago Bastas falas no trabalho Tu que não és pago Recebes bolas no trabalho Sim, tu que és humilhado Por não teres ido à escola Ninguém percebe Que tu veste que pegar cedo no trabalho Tu que pagas impostos Ficas de nada nos bolsos Tu que fazes dirigentes engordarem como porcos Tu que não percebes economia nem política Dizem que o país desenvolve Mas no teu prato não vês comida Tu que serás lembrado só das próximas eleições E verás o candidato em helicópteros e aviões Tu que vieste para a cidade à procura de sustento Porque no campo a agricultura não dura sem vestimento Tu que apertas com os teus filhos no quarto de dependência Acordas cedo, dormes tarde a lutar to march by Azagaya. He died March 9th in his home country of Mozambique. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to mark the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we look now at how the mainstream U.S. media helped to pave the way for war by uncritically amplifying the lies of the Bush administration, for example, around weapons of mass destruction, while silencing voices of dissent. In 2003, the media watchdog group FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, published a report titled, In Iraq Crisis, Networks Are Megaphones for Official Views. The report found in the weeks leading up to the invasion, the nation's four top nightly news programs interviewed 267 current or former government or military officials. Just one of them expressed skepticism or opposition to the war. In a moment, we'll be joined by the longtime media critic Norman Solomon. But first, let's turn to an excerpt of the documentary War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death, produced by the Media Education Foundation, based on Norm Solomon's book of the same name. We cannot wait for the final proof, the smoking gun, that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. As Americans, we like to think that we're not subjected to propaganda from our own government, certainly that we're not subjected to propaganda that's trying to drag the country into war, as in the case of setting the stage for the invasion of Iraq. Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. There is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Botulin, VX, sarin, nerve agent. Iraq and Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. Iraq and Al-Qaeda. Terrorism. Cyber attacks. Nuclear program. Biological weapons. Cruise missiles, ballistic missiles. Chemical and biological weapons. Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. President Bush has said Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Tony Blair has said Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Donald Rumsfeld has said Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Richard Butler has said they do. The United Nations has said they do. The experts have said they do. Iraq says they don't. You can choose who you want to believe. The war propaganda function in the United States is finely tuned, it's sophisticated, and most of all, it blends into the media terrain. The White House says it can prove that Saddam Hussein does have weapons of mass destruction, claiming it has solid evidence. The White House insisted again today it does have solid evidence. It's necessary to provide a drumbeat media echo effect. They might fight dirty using weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, anthrax, smallpox, dirty bomb, dirty bomb, Iraq-Al-Qaeda connection. Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda share the same goal. Both of them want to see Americans 
again. And I was very struck by the acceptance, the tone of most of the media coverage as the sabers were rattled, as the invasion of Iraq gradually went from possible to probable to almost certain. President essentially giving Saddam 48 hours to get out of Dodge. War now seems all but inevitable. Short of a bullet to the back of his head or he, he leaves the country, uh, war is inexorable. Well, I think that's exactly right. War is inevitable, and it is approaching inexorably. Is war with Iraq inevitable right now? I think it's 95% inevitable. You, at this point, right now, tonight, don't see any other option but war. Do you? I'm asking you, Ambassador. <laughs> I agree. I don't think there's a viable option for the administration at this point. We're way too far out front in this. Send us over there, guys. Let's get on with it. Let's get it over with. Showdown Iraq. If America goes to war, turn to MSNBC and the experts. And in many ways, the U.S. news media were equal partners with the officials in Washington and on Capitol Hill in setting the agenda for war. We'll take you there. And although it's called the liberal media, one has a great deal of difficulty finding an example of major media outlets in their reporting, challenging the way in which the agenda setting for war is well underway. We've got generals, and if you ask them about the prospects for war with Iraq, they think it is almost certain. Pay no heed to the peaceniks and the left-wing rock stars. They've had their 15 minutes of fame. These people are essentially useless. They are reflexively opposed to war. It's a principled position, but it's the wrong position, and you can't take them seriously as a strategic voice. We expect every American to support our military, and if they can't do that, to shut up. And when that reporting is so much a hostage of official sources, that's when you have a problem. U.S. officials tell CNN, Bush officials says that analysts say Pentagon officials tell us. According to U.S. intelligence, often we're encouraged to believe that officials are the ones who make news. U.S. officials say U.S. officials say that U.S. officials here say these officials here at the White House tell us they are the ones who should be consulted to understand the situation. I just pull these two things out. I've laundered them so you can't really tell what I'm talking about because I don't want the Iraqis to know what I'm talking about. But trust, trust. If history's any guide, the opposite is the case. The officials blow smoke and cloud reality rather than clarify. We will, in fact, be greeted as liberators. The notion that it will take several hundred thousand U.S. troops are wildly off the mark. So the money's going to come from Iraqi oil revenue, as everyone has said. They think it's going to be something like $2 billion this year. They think it might be something like 15, 12 next year. We seek peace. We strive for peace. Those last words, George W. Bush, weeks before the U.S. invaded Iraq 20 years ago. An excerpt from the documentary War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinging Us to Death. It's based on a book by the same name by our next guest, Norman Solomon, executive director of the Institute for Policy for Public Accuracy, co-founder of RootsAction.org. His forthcoming book, titled War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Your thoughts on this 20th anniversary, Norman Solomon, because so many of the voices and faces we see in this documentary, so many of the commentators on television and the hosts are the same today. Very much. Uh, in the mass media, being pro-war is portrayed as objective. Being anti-war is portrayed as being biased. And very much so, the same media outlets and often the same people uh, who lied, teamed up with the U.S. government to convey complete distortions 
to stampede the United States into war on Iraq two decades ago. These are the same media outlets that are in the last few days telling us what it all means. And it reminds uh, us, I think, of something that George Orwell said. He said, those control, who control the past control the future. Those who control the present control the past. Uh, he was alluding to the fight over history that's so important because when it is rendered in a distorted way, whether in real time, you know, journalism is supposed to be the first draft of history. In the U.S. mass media, it's a distorted draft. Or in retrospect, it's also prefigurative. And I think an example is how 20 years ago, actually a little more than that, right after 9-11, uh, President George W. Bush said, either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. And that was amplified, accepted, embraced by the U.S. mass media. Uh, now, in uh, the last year, we're hearing from the current president, either you're with us or you're with the Russians. Now, of course, what happened at 9-11 was horrible. It was a crime against humanity. Uh, the terrorists uh, did a terrible, horrible thing, uh, just as the Russians invading Ukraine uh, have been doing a terrible thing. At the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that, as the saying goes, this is not really a Manichaean world. We can't just simply divide the world into good or bad. And here's an example. Our own president, uh, President Joe Biden, uh, tells us that the world is divided in between those who believe in human rights and those who don't. This is the guy who fist bumped the leader of Saudi Arabia as that country continued to slaughter people with U.S. government help in Yemen. So these are fictitious narratives 20 years ago now that support U.S. militarism. I want to go back to 2003. Legendary TV host Phil Donahue fired from his primetime MSNBC talk show during the run-up to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The problem wasn't his ratings, uh, but rather his views. An internal MSNBC memo warned Donahue was a difficult public face for NBC in a time of war, providing a, quote, home for liberal anti-war agenda at the same time that our competitors are waving the flag at every opportunity. Um, well, in 2013, Democracy Now! spoke to Phil Donahue about his firing. I think what happened to me, the biggest lesson, I think, is the how corporate media shapes our opinions and our coverage. This was uh, a decision, my decision, the decision to release me, came from far above. Uh, this was not an assistant program director who decided to uh, separate me from MSNBC. They were terrified of the anti-war voice, and that is not an overstatement. Anti-war voices were not popular. And if you're General Electric, you certainly don't want an anti-war voice on a cable channel that you own. Donald Rumsfeld is your biggest customer. So, uh, by the way, I had to have two uh, conservatives on for every liberal. I could have Richard Pearl on alone, but I couldn't have uh, Dennis Kucinich on alone. I was considered two liberals. It really is funny, almost, when you look back on how, how the management was just frozen by the anti-war voice. We were scolds. We weren't, we weren't patriotic. Um, American people di disagreed with us. Uh, and it, we weren't good for business. 
So that was Phil Donahue talking about what happened to him 20 years ago. Norman Solomon, if you could take it from there and also talk about the double standard and how grief is covered. Um, that's grief of those within the U.S. and U.S. allied countries versus the grief of everyone else. And also, your last book was War Made Easy. Your new book will be called War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. Expand on that. Yes, yeah, so much of this is about corporate power in media, the interlocks with the military-industrial complex, the huge amounts of money that continue to be made by supplying the Pentagon with the tools of the murderous trade of ongoing war. Anybody who thinks the lies and the profiteering from slaughter is just 20 years ago is mistaken. What we're seeing now is a more invisibility of war, just as profitable, if not more so, massive arms sales to arm Ukraine, to build nuclear weapons in a new generation, as it's called, and the air war that has largely supplanted the ground troops. Remember 10, 15 years ago, so many U.S. troops on the ground. There are now, more than ever in many respects, two tiers of grief from the U.S. mass media and those on Capitol Hill and the White House. Grief that matters and grief that doesn't. The grief that matters is those of Americans who suffer, uh, the designated allies, such as Ukraine uh, citizens. Well, of course, we should empathize and portray the suffering of everyone who uh, endures war. War is a crime against humanity. But what we're not getting is that other tier of grief being conveyed. As a matter of fact, uh, 20 years ago to today, the victims of U.S. war, financed by or bombs dropped on these people, they are virtually non-people in the U.S. mass media. You can scour for thousands of pages of the congressional record and not find any empathy, any connection in human terms. And so, really, Amy, I think when we get down to what's really underneath so much of this is the tacit nationalism or explicit nationalism and racism and arrogance that says that some human beings really, really matter, which is correct, and other human beings really don't matter, especially if they're being slaughtered by U.S. weaponry that is so profitable. And finally, Norman Solomon, the coverage of the anti-war movement, bringing out the voices of those who are opposed to war, looking for a just peace. Yes, this is part of the mythology of mass media, that we live in this land of the free and home of the brave. And yet, when push comes to shove, we only get from the corporate media glorification or even substantial coverage of anti-war protesters when they're in Moscow. And we should support the anti-war protesters in Moscow. We should also support and publicize and really convey to the American people the messaging of anti-war protesters and a deep reservoir of anti-war belief in this country. Norman Solomon, I want to thank you for being with us, executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, co-founder of RootsAction.org, author of War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. The film above that same title, um, War Made Easy, is produced by the Media Education Foundation. His forthcoming book is titled War Made Invisible. 
How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. A belated happy birthday to Tammy Warnoff. Uh, Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a digital fellow. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Tarina Ndura, Sam Alkoff, Tamar Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Sanji Lopez, our executive director, Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell. I'm Amy Goodman.